Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's, where the crew is on your team. Grab your shopping cart, make a quick snap, and move out of the pocket. Run an option to the demo station. Make an end around to the snacks, then find an eligible receiver to take you to the end zone. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, we usually save our shout-outs to the end of the episode, but how about today we just do a quick shout-out right off the top to Army? Yeah, shout-out to Army and Navy. They put on quite a show. Obviously, I think it was awesome when the game is in is in a, you know, a blizzard like it was. I think it was beautiful pictures. And uh, you and I talked about this a little bit ago offline. This game has it was always just a ton to the rivalry itself. You know, having grown up near West Point, there's been an appreciation, you know, for a lot of folks because it means so much more. Like, I mean, the SEC motto is it, it just means more. Well, this rivalry means way more. <laughs> takes it to another level. But just as as uh, Jeff Munkin has got that program going in the last couple of years, the game has been so much more riveting. I think. Yeah, that was the key. It was it was such a one sided rivalry for so long. That, yeah, you could appreciate the pageantry and the idea of it, but the game itself was kind of secondary. And the last two years with Army obviously ending the streak last year and winning Commanders in Chief, uh, the Commander in Chief trophy on, uh, you know, in dramatic fashion uh, this year on the missed field goal. I mean, it's just been riveting television and not coincidentally the highest rating CBS has gotten for that game since the early 90s, I believe. So, uh, congrats to Army. First two-game winning streak in the series in a long, long time. First Commander-in-Chief trophy since 96. Now, it used to be that since they moved it to Heisman weekend, that Army-Navy was kind of the lead-in to the Heisman. But I feel like it's kind of the opposite now. (laughs) Everybody watches Army-Navy. I don't know how many people stick around for the Heisman ceremony when it's as lopsided. When when you know going in, Baker Mayfield's going to win, and it's just a matter of by how much. Anything, just looking back at who finished in the top 10 and how it was, I mean, we all knew Baker Mayfield was going to run away with it by how much, I guess, like you said, was the question. Anything in the actual results kind of catch your eye? I was a little surprised to see Roquan Smith. I mean, lately that's been a Heisman trend is that there's a token defensive player in there somewhere. And uh, he's a great player. There's no question about it. I'm a little surprised because I don't feel like he was seen as the runaway Oh yeah, this guy's the best defensive player in college football this year. Uh, like maybe there was somebody like that, in, in, like an Indomitian Sue in in two thousand nine or Manti Teo. Uh, he's any one of any number of defensive players you could have seen getting some votes. But I guess uh, there was no SEC candidate really this year, so I'm sure a lot of those votes in the South had to get went to him or whoever else. Karen Johnson, I'm sure got a lot of those votes. 
And to no one else, too. I mean, if first place votes, I mean, nobody in the SEC got any of them other than Roquan Smith. Right. Yeah, isn't that yeah. interesting? He got first place votes, but Carrion Johnson didn't, and he got three. To be accurate, he only got three of the first place right. votes. But but um, now we're really stretching it for because I think Rogan Smith was tenth, so we're really searching. I will say this: seeing Rashad Penny sitting there in fifth just kind of renews my. And this is a fairly recent argument I started making. I think it was two years ago that they shouldn't base the finalists based on the votes. Just send the top five. It's in. That, if anything, would add a little interest to it because people people care about who the finalists are. And I, I know why they do it the way they do. There's some sort of cutoff in the vote. But, like, you know, Baker Mayfield could have been a finalist the first year, but they only invited three people. Keenan Reynolds could have been a finalist. It would be really if, cool if I'm, to say if, Rashad Penny's a finalist. If I'm, if I'm the Heisman, but if also if I'm ESPN putting on that show, I want five guys there because then if – you know what? Saquon Barkley had the fourth most uh, first place votes. Celebrate his story. I mean, right. celebrate Penn State a little, you know, like of what he's done there. Like you said, celebrate Rashad Penny from San Diego State. Give them more of a chance in the spotlight for that purpose. Even like a guy like Mackenzie Milton, who got who I think had the six most first place votes. I think that's a good thing. What I wanted to ask you, though, is so Baker ran away with this thing. Somebody had asked me on Twitter, okay, so where would you rank him in your top 50? Or is he, is he in your top 50? Because you and I had had this conversation on the Audible probably a couple months before the season started. Uh, I think it was our top 50 in our lifetimes in college football all time. And I said he right now would be in my top 25. If he leads them, Oklahoma, to a national title, he's going to go a lot higher than that. And so I looked at my top, my top 50 – so this was the list we submitted to Athlons, right, to their last summer. They did uh, 50 best players of the last 50 years. We, we discussed it a lot on here. So, yeah, go ahead. If he went, leads Oklahoma to the national title, he will, he will crack my top 10. And I'm looking at my number 10. My number 10 guy is Vince Young. Had the best game I've ever seen when he, when he led Texas over that great USC team. Reggie Bush is 11, Larry Fitzgerald 12, Charles Woodson was 13. I would put Baker Mayfield in front of those guys. By the way, this is a pretty amazing stat that uh, that I saw from Oklahoma. Since 1950, only two players have finished in the top four of the Heisman Trophy balloting three times. Herschel Walker's one, Baker Mayfield the other. And again, he led him to a playoff a couple years ago. If he can win this with... Their defense is nothing close talent-wise compared to what Vince Young had. And given his career, I think he's a legit top 10 player. It kind of sneaks up on you because, on the one hand, you know I'm always a little trying to guard against recency bias. I know that you, you know, as I recall, you had Marcus Mariota really high. I had Marcus Mariota six. We're surprised that he wasn't yeah. higher. I had him 31st. And you were way wrong about that, which I think you admitted later. Well, we were both today. much higher than he He either didn't crack that Athlon list or he was 47th, something like yeah, that. something stupid like that, yeah. Now let's compare what he accomplished to what uh, Baker Mayfield could accomplish. Mariota did not win a national title. He did play for one. Statistically, he, he is the greatest quarterback 
that I would say has played college football in our lifetimes. But Baker Mayfield is breaking those records. He's going to be the most In, in some passer. ways. Yeah, in some ways he is. In some ways. There's some other things that Mariota is doing that are, that are off the charts. Wise, well, though. Let's not even spin it ahead. Just as of today, having won a Heisman, having been a top five or top four vote getter for three years, having taken his team to one playoff, would he trump Mariota yet? No, no, no. Mariota's six for me. So he's got to take his team. Okay, what if he takes his? What if they beat Georgia and they reach the national title game, which would be equivalent to what Mariota did? He might. I mean, I we'll see. I mean, right now, to me, if he does it, I would say he's in the top ten. You know, my top five right now is Herschel Walker, Cam Newton, Barry Sanders, and Dominican Sue, Derek Thomas, and then I have Mariota sixth, Jerry Rice seventh, Archie Griffin eighth. I could easily see him getting not easily, but I could easily see him. I could see him getting in the top eight, for, you know, with that. That's uh, that's bold. Again, it's tough because I look at this list, and most of the guys in my top ten played a long time ago. It's Herschel Walker, Barry Sanders, then Tim Tebow's three. Earl you Kim. have Tim Tebow three? Yeah. And again, here, here, let's compare him to Baker Mayfield. Two national titles. Well, one of them he was. One of them he shared the starting sure. job. Like, he was a part of it. Yeah. Big part of it. Heisman, just like uh, Baker, three Heisman finalists three years in a row won a Heisman. I don't think he was not. Wait, wait, wait. He was a final. He was in the top four. Well, again, he was a finalist three years in a oh, row. Okay, there might have been a year where he was fifth. So because Baker can't win a two national titles, he's still trying to get to one. How could you put him ahead of Tebow? Because Tebow had way better players on defense around him. Why I don't, don't think hold, I don't understand why you would hold that against somebody. I'm not holding it against him. I, for you to tell me that Tim Tebow is the third best player in our lifetime, and he's an awesome story. I don't want this to be Bruce dumps on Tim Tebow, but Baker Mayfield's a much better passer. Well, like of to me, he's it's a much better passer. A lot of the guys on this list are better passers, but Tebow, of course, was was both. Like I, 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 don't know, I you I, and I just, just seem to differ most on the quarterbacks. We're pretty similar on running backs and defensive players. But yeah. you, had, you also have Cam. We went over this. I don't want to regurgitate all this again, but obviously yeah. you think Cam Newton deserves to be that high based on that one season. I think to be on this list, you should be you know, that's fair. Like that's four just a year player. Of, that's just a difference of criteria. But I do I have him in there. I have him 25th. So Leinert, who just got inducted into the Hall of Fame last week, I had 22nd. That's around where I would see Baker Mayfield finish. Yeah, I have actually Leinert, I want to say like 25th, right behind Tebow. Very similar, yeah. There's that's a very similar career path. Although actually, he's not going to get to two national titles like Liner did. He's not. Look, I, you know, and I'm, it's tough for both of us to really talk about Matt Liner objectively because I think we both really like him, you know, as a person and are friends with him in ways we aren't, you know, know some of these people. He had a great career. There's no way, you know, Baker didn't have anything close to what these other guys have had. Just the, I would say this. If you take, and, and some of this might apply to Tebow to some degree, but if you take Baker Mayfield off this Oklahoma team, I'm not sure they win more than six or seven games. All right, so my verdict is this. If he wins the national title, I'm going to put him in my top 25. I'm going to put him probably right between Liner and Cam Newton. If he doesn't win another game, if his career ends after the uh, Rose Bowl, that's going to be a little bit tougher, but I think I would put him... Towards the, I would still put him in the top fifty, but towards the bottom. By the way, do you do this whole Cam Newton thing is not in the top twenty five just because you know it really pisses me off? Well, I'm twenty fifth. 
Yeah, so he's not in the top 20, just because you know it pisses me off. Again, it's tough. How do you compare his one extremely... I know. His one just absolutely phenomenal season with, say, Weinert, who went 37-2 and over three years. Yeah. I'm starting to wonder if we, and I mean college football media, are over-covering the Heisman relative to people's actual interest in it. And I'm talking about all season long. We talk about every week, (coughs) weekly, straw poll... I think people care for sure if it involves one of their players. But now that we then you get to the final week and you get to the actual ceremony, and it feels like an afterthought. Now, maybe that's because it was a foregone conclusion, but I don't know. I'd be curious. So email us at theaudiblepod at gmail.com if you feel like we talk too much about the Heisman, too little. About, I, think, right? I think the answer is going to be we do talk too much about it. Right. Like, should we still be doing a Heisman's drop poll on our various websites every week? Do people care enough about it? I think I the numbers would indicate, at least from my anecdotal perspective, they do care about it. Well, I'll tell you what they care a lot more about is the coaching carousel. I don't think what it's over. With the, with the, with yeah, the grown-up segue, segue there. That was <laughs> I, I don't think it's coming. over. There will always be some last, you know, somebody will leave the NFL or something and start this whole thing over again. But in terms of Power 5 jobs, all of the ones that opened either during or right after the regular season are now filled. You know, we've talked plenty about Chip Kelly to UCLA or Scott Frost to Nebraska. We had a wave of what I would consider to be next-level um, jobs that were filled in the last week or so, and I'm curious. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call at, at Florida State a next-level job. But. Oh, of course not. But I guess I'm curious who you think is best poised for success of the – we'll just describe – we'll just put it as like more under-the-radar hires. For our purposes, are we calling it any hire that's been made in the last week? Because that would include Florida State hiring Willie Taggart. I mean, I don't think well, you can consider A&M hiring Jimbo Fisher to be under the radar. But uh, No, certainly not. But, certainly but, not. Yeah, why don't you throw Willie Taggart in there? Because there are some questions. People feel like, are we sure this is the right guy for Florida State? But I'm also talking about ones like Jeremy Pruitt. Tennessee finally lands a coach since Jeremy Pruitt. Uh, Chad Morris to Arkansas. Both Oregon schools are now filled. Mario Cristobal uh, going to Oregon. Jonathan Smith to Oregon State. Who you got? Let's take each of them this way. So the Chad Morris one, I, by the way, I watched his, his – I say this after watching it. So I saw his first team meeting. It was online, Arkansas. Uh, media relations put it out there. It was very impressive. I came away reminded that your first team meeting, if you can watch it, is way more compelling than what your first press conference is. Not to say that the first press conference, a la Herm Edwards, can't be telling. Oh but my gosh, that thing was incredible. It was spectacular, wasn't it? But but I, I was impressed by Chad Morris' sit-down with his first team meeting. Having said that, the Bielema thing to me has made me so skittish on the potential to win enough at Arkansas, the way Arkansas is positioned right now and the way the SEC West is positioned now. And I look, I like Chad Morris. I thought he did a very, very good job at Clemson. I thought he did a nice job, you know, getting SMU turned around. That is a, that is, talk about the deep end of the pool there, though. So that's a tough one. For me, Tennessee, I think we could talk a whole podcast about Tennessee and the search and how it landed on Jeremy Pruitt. Hard thing for me with Jeremy Pruitt is he's never been a head coach. And so we just, you know, you can be prepared on a lot of fronts. You just don't know how it's going to work out. I do think it's important on staffing issues. He's got a lot of experience, you know, as we reported late last week of the guys who are going to be on the defensive side of the ball. The, the most important hire, I think, on his staff is going to be 
it looks like it's going to be Tyson Helton, who comes from USC. He's Clay Helton's younger brother. He was the passing game coordinator for the Trojans. He uh, was with Jeff Brom at Western Kentucky before that. The offense has been dreadful. Now, a lot of people I know are very high on Tyson Helton, but you know, to me, this is going to be very interesting to watch and to see how much better they can get on offense. I mean, let me ask you this. Who do you think has a better chance of getting in the top 15 faster, Tennessee or Arkansas? Well, here's the thing. Tennessee as a whole is set up better to do that. So if, if frankly, if Jeremy Pruitt doesn't get them back in the top 15 fairly quickly, he's doing something wrong. What's fairly quickly? Uh, within a couple years, within three years. Okay. So this is not what, you know. I know we've we've been through this over and over again about Tennessee and what Bush Jones inherited and et cetera. But you know, at the end of the day, they've got the resources, they've got the tradition, they've got the hundred thousand seat stadium. Do they have a natural recruiting base? No, but plenty of great Tennessee teams over the years have gotten it done. I do think you're shortchanging Arkansas a little bit, though, in that Bobby Petrino yes. took them to a BCS game into double digit wins back to back not that long ago. Houston not had success there. So I think if it's the right coach, they can be successful, and I think they did well. Chad Morris is my pick for this little thing that I threw out there. Now, he's been rumored for so many jobs over the last few years, but I think this one is the right one in that that's a, that's a school that would benefit greatly from a really good Texas recruiter, and you know he's going to be that. He just He's a Texas high school coach at, uh, through and through. So you know he's going to recruit well in the state of Texas. That bodes well for Arkansas, which generally can't beat Alabama, LSU for the um, more traditional SEC states. And I think that may have been part of Bielema's downfall. He was never going to out-recruit those schools. And, you know, the system that he ran at Wisconsin worked at Wisconsin. It wasn't going to work at Arkansas going against those those teams and with the you know best of the best recruits from the Southeast. I'm curious also your thoughts on Mario Cristobal, who you know well and for a long time, I was excited for him and excited for Oregon because given Taggart leaving after a year and given the momentum they created in recruiting, you know, just seemed like a no-brainer. Don't, don't overthink this. He's right there on your staff. He did a tremendous job at FIU. But there are skeptics who say maybe don't know the context of FIU when he took over. See the, yeah, if you, see the if bad you look at his record. Yeah, if you look at his record at FIU and you're skeptical, you'd have no concept of what FIU was at the time. I mean, and this is the truth, because I actually went and saw both FIU when Don Strzok was there and FIU and Cristobal got there. That was worse than a startup. And the reason why it was worse than a startup is because not only did they have no film library, no academic support, no weight room, no anything facilities wise, they were in trailers. But they actually had he inherited an APR mess, which meant they weren't even going to be able to take full scholarships. So that is worse than a startup. So the fact that he got them into a bowl game and they won it or the fact that they beat Louisville on the road, you know, speaks to that. Also, if you look at the guys he hired who are now very high up in coaching, have done very well. And he took them when they were largely nobodies. I think that speaks to his, you know, his eye for talent. He's also. You know, anecdotally, he's the first person I ever heard talk about Chip Kelly. And this was before, you know, this is back when he was a, a New Hampshire guy. So is Mario going to lead them to back to a national title game like Helfrich had him a few years ago? I don't know. That's asking a ton, especially with the way 
the way Washington is with Chris Peterson in that division. I mean, that's a pretty tough division now with Stanford, with Washington. As long as Leach is in Pullman, they're not. A, they're going to be a tough out as well. But he is a, you know, fantastic recruiter. Uh, the question is going to be what he puts together in his staff. I know he wants to keep Marcus Arroyo as the OC there. You know, he's inherited a very good situation in this. I mean, to me, Justin Herbert's going to be a first-round pick when he eventually leaves there. I think they have a dozen guys who start who are either freshmen or sophomores, including a lot of guys, I think four, who are on his offensive line. So, you know, if they can keep some semblance of this recruiting class together, that bodes well. Again, I, I what's kind of taking a step back, which is kind of a little bit surreal to me, is last year Mario was like, I'm not sure he could have gotten Western Michigan, and now he's the head coach at Oregon. Funny how that and works I, out. It is. I mean, look, I mean, Ed Ogeron, at one point, ULL, Louisiana Lafayette, has come open. And at one point, there was a discussion whether he was gonna, you know, could have gotten that job, and now he's the LSU coach. But I think when you look at some of these situations, and a lot of times fans will go, well, nobody want to hire this guy. Who else wanted him? And then you you look, I mean, like, who was going to hire Dabo Sweeney when he got the Clemson job? Right. Nobody. Right. I mean, it just kind of sometimes it, it it turns out that way and it proves to be very good. Sometimes it doesn't. Stu, do one other thing about Cristobal in Oregon. I know that when I saw uh, the night before the, the move was made official that uh, they were hiring Cristobal as the, as the permanent head coach, you saw a lot of his players, you know, they had this petition. A bunch of them went to the AED, Rob Mullins, to champion Cristobal's cause. And it reminded me a little bit of what happened at Miami when when Butch Davis had left there and they had uh, many of the key players on the team had had gone to the AD then Paul D and lobbied for Larry Coker to be the guy. Larry Coker ended up winning a national title, but then the program, you know, obviously backslid in a hurry after that. There are similarities in terms of the player trying to support and make this happen. The one big difference is, I, you know, the knock on Larry Coker was that the program had gone soft eventually under him. No one, I think, would ever accuse a Mario Cristobal team of being soft. That's just pretty much the opposite of how he is. Now, it's not to say that he has he's going to lead them to a national title, certainly in his first year. I think this team he inherits is very talented, but given who's in that division, I mean, I think it's a stretch to expect them to be more than maybe a top 15, top 20 team, though. One more real quick, because it's just completely flown under the radar. Just give me a yay or nay. You think he'll work out there. Joe Moorhead, Penn State offensive coordinator, hired at Mississippi State. I believe, of all the SEC hires, the only one that has no ties to that part of the country. Uh, I would give him a, a yay. Yeah, he doesn't have ties to that part of the country. Dan Mullen's a Northeast guy, too. Uh, the thing is, I mean, he's one of the smartest men in coaching. I like that he hired Bob Shoup. Shoup didn't do well last year at uh, Tennessee, but did do very well at Vandy. He knows the SEC. I think that I think he'll do well. And, you know, it helps that he is inheriting a very good situation. Dan Mullen was leaving behind a really good team. And I think they'll do well under Joe Moorhead. I remember it's not like he's a first time head coach. He took over what was a dreadful Fordham program, a one win, one win team, and then had him win in league championships. I think Mississippi State's very fortunate to land Joe Moorhead. I think he's a great coach. And I think they'll be very successful right off the bat because of what you said. Their players are there, in particular the quarterback, to have success in his system. The question long-term will be recruiting. Uh, SEC recruiting is such a unique 
and, and cutthroat thing. Can a guy from the Northeast succeed at that? What kind of staff will he put together? But uh, in terms of the right off the bat, don't be surprised if, uh, if he has a big first season there. Uh, which was surprised you more in retrospect, this one, that Herm Edwards got Arizona State or that Josh Heupel is the next, court, the next head coach at UCF? Clearly Herm Edwards is the more surprising one, but I did want to bring that up actually because now you're saying surprising because Heupel's not that far removed from being fired at Oklahoma? That wasn't the reason why I was saying it, but it just surprised, it surprised me a little on this front. If you were to ask me, UCF had wanted Kevin Sumlin, you know, he didn't end up jumping at the job. Those two personalities are about as opposite as you could get. Now, they both have worked under Bob Stoops, but just in terms of, you know, their personas are pretty opposite. So Josh Apple did a really nice job with Drew Locke and the Missouri offense, but it still kind of surprised me a little bit that that he ended up with that job. It's not to say he won't do well there. It's a, it's a really good job. I mean, I think especially with what Scott Frost left behind, I mean, it's not just Mackenzie Milton. They have, they're terrific young running backs, a sophomore, the leader of the offensive line is a sophomore. So there's a lot to build on. I was just, I guess yeah. what surprised me most is that UCF wouldn't want, usually in a situation like this, you want to just keep the momentum going and hire from within. And I guess I'm surprised that the AD there, Danny White wants to, I mean, I know they at least gave kind of a cursory interview to Troy Walters, the offensive coordinator, but at the end of the day, Scott Frost's entire staff is going with him to Nebraska. So this is going to be, you know, you're going to take a 12-0 and team and just basically start over with that program. That's that's the part that surprises me, not anything specific to Hypo. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that front. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, it's a good job and it's certainly a good one for for Josh Heupel to land with. Beyond the coaching search stuff, you ready to get into the mailbag? Yeah, I mean, we owe it to our listeners. We haven't really done much mailbag this season, but it's always been a, a big part of the Audible. And now that we have this little break in the action, this is an ideal time to catch up, don't you think? If you want to send questions, send it to theaudible at gmail.com. Oh my gosh. We've only been doing this for three years and you still don't know the email address. Tell me, Stu, what is it? The Audible Pod at gmail.com. You don't know the you just don't know the email address to your own podcast. I don't, no, sadly. This question, be that as it may, is from Jason. What does it mean for Clay Helton if he beats Urban Meyer and Ohio State in the Cotton Bowl? That'd be two straight bowl wins over Big Ten champs. Would he finally be respected? I think that'd be big, big time for Clay Helton because he he's right. Jason's right. There's the respect factor still lags there even after winning the Rose Bowl last year and now winning a Pac-12 championship. But any time you beat one of those guys, an Urban Meyer or Nick Saban, that earns you major respect. Now, I will say that all USC coaches are judged by, can you win us the national championship? And so he hasn't gotten to that yet. But in particular, given how much the dynamics of that job are about to change with Chip Kelly taking over across town, and obviously a lot of people think, well, now USC's done for because Chip Kelly's going to coach the heck out of Clay Helton. Yeah, I think this would um, – he needs this. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a really good question by Jason. It's something I hadn't really drilled down and thought of, like the what if. You know, if they get blown out by them, that I think is a bad scenario. I, I certainly think if they if it's competitive and they don't win, I don't think it's damning. But if they get blown out, it's going to be – it would make for a very long offseason for a team that still would have won the Pac-12 title. And I think that – 
you know, that should say something. But yeah, I think there's a feeling here living in Los Angeles of just, I think there's, uh, to some people, I think there's some buyer's remorse because Chip Kelly works across town. And I think that short of winning a national title right now, I think that that's where the expectation is with this USC program. It's like national championship or bust about this place. And it's always, it's always been that way. But, you know, he wasn't, a, it wasn't a popular move when Pat Hayden promoted him to permanent coach the week of that, of the Pac-12 title game that year. So he's been having to dig out and then one and three to start the next year. So he's kind of been having to dig out of that uh, ever since. The blowout to Notre Dame this year didn't help his cause. Uh, but yeah, I thought, all things considered, that they rebounded and they won the Pac-12. That's a pretty good season. But this may be one of those seasons where how you do in the bowl uh, impacts generally how the fans feel about it. Scott McNulty with a little deeper question, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at the bigger picture, how often in your conversation with athletic directors or head coaches or anyone else deeply involved in the sport... Does the possibility of the game no longer being played at the college and or high school level come up? With litigation-hungry lawyers always looking for deep pockets to go after and the undeniable CTE issues associated with the game, colleges with their endowments and municipalities that sponsor football would seem to be at risk. That's a good question. It is. It doesn't come up when when I talk to a lot of people, uh, administrators or people within the game. You know, I feel like, and maybe this is going to be looked at as having your head in the sand, but I feel like this gets talked about a lot more by people who are not really connected with college athletics than it does with people who are in it. I could be wrong, but I just think that a lot of the the doomsday talk with football, you know, and I, I'll position it this way. So on uh, last Tuesday night, I went to the College Football Hall of Fame event and Jerry Jones spoke and then Peyton Manning spoke and, uh, you know, a bunch of people, you know, addressed this group of thousand people or so and they talked about how the game of football is under attack jerry jones stressed it a lot you know peyton manning said it to some degree but jerry jones really did and when they say that i think they feel like it's coming from a lot of levels now certainly you know it's become a political football not to use it make a pun of that but i think that's become part of it i think there are some sobering stories that go on that are related to to either CTE or some version of catastrophic injuries that are part of the game and have been always part of the game. And I think that now you see them and it's, you know, as like, we both have kids, obviously I have a, I have a son, you don't, but just in terms of would you want your kid's son to play football in this day and age, knowing what we now know. And I still think there's going to be a lot of people, you know, including myself who would be fine with that just because relative to the numbers, it's not percentage wise is I don't think it's as damning as maybe the anecdotal evidence, you know, kind of indicates. I think that, you know, you use the phrase head in the sand and I don't think I'd go quite that far, but it's, but you're onto something. I think that if you had to, first of all, to your point, nobody brings it up in the sport, within the sport. Nobody is, seems particularly worried that for instance, they're not going to have a job and, 15, 20 years because the sport will have gone away. There is a general acknowledgement of the uh, importance of these issues. and But I think there's just a lot of like, well, it'll work itself out. I could be wrong. I, nobody's said those words to me. But whether it's, there have been you know certain measures taken, whether it's the less contact in practice or take, getting rid of two-a-days, any number of things where people can kind of take comfort in that, I guess, and saying, like, oh, we're doing something about it. But 
no, I, I don't get the sense that anybody is is alarmist like that. I think that generally comes from uh, I don't even know if really it comes from even the sports world. You know, it's it's a larger issue than that at this point. There's always I feel like I'm always seeing some sort of I don't know a university or someone's holding a panel and they're debating whether football should go away. It's one of those kind of like paying the players, one of these things for people to debate on an academic panel, but it's not really practically a discuss. It's not an actual conversation or actual discussion that's taking place among the people who actually have a stake in it. And when you're talking about the money that is involved with the NFL, I mean, the, the money that it was making was insane amount of money. So if it dips, um, I could see that I could see the level of panic amongst them at one point but it's like it's not like all of a sudden you're shutting a faucet off there's been no sign that i mean there was a movie there was a will smith movie about it like there's been no shortage of coverage of this and there's been no sign that interest like fan interest in football has been affected in any way now the issue is will like you said will a generation of kids parents not want them to play football and thus there will not be a pool of players available to college football at some point. Let me ask you this. So um, Richard Deitch, who works at SI.com or works at Sports Illustrated, had done a column over the weekend about taking a look at the TV numbers that college football had this year. And obviously in full disclosure, I work for Fox TV and you, you worked for Fox before. The numbers for Fox are, are positive because everybody else's numbers are, are, are down. The Fox numbers and FS1 numbers are quite a bit up. But in, you know, in, in truth, Fox just got well, – this is the first year of having the Big Ten. I mean my crew itself, we had a, we had a Penn State-Michigan State game that was a seven-hour event. That drew almost four million people. I mean people – say what you want about the Big Ten – the Big Ten does some big TV numbers, not just Ohio State, but there's a lot of brands that have a lot of uh, attraction. What did you make of the TV numbers, and is there something more that that people could take from it, whether it's re- re- reflective on passion for the game of football? Yeah, I, the only thing I took from it was, so he, he spotlighted the various network. Here, I'll pull up the numbers for you. Average viewer, viewership for the regular season this year, CBS down 10%. ABC down 18%, Fox up 23%, NBC down 3%, ESPN down 6%, and FS1 up 4%. So what I took from that was pretty simple. The Big Ten games moved to Fox, and Fox's ratings went up, and ESPN and ABC's went down. The exception was CBS, which is contingent on one conference, the SEC, and the SEC wasn't that entertaining this year. It was very top-heavy. I mean, it had two teams in the playoff. Very top heavy. There if you years, look at what there were years when you know the SEC game on CBS every week was compelling. You only had that a handful of weeks. Now you did have the the title game, which was kind of a blowout. It was a twenty. It was a twenty one point game. Now maybe it wasn't a blowout for four quarters, but it was. It turned into a blowout, and that still did a huge number TV wise. The two at the end of the day, the two biggest audiences for a game this year were for the Iron Bowl. 13.65 million and Georgia Auburn 13.46 million. That's the second Georgia Auburn game. By followed the way, by Ohio State the- Wisconsin on Fox, followed by Florida State Alabama on ABC and fifth was It was a, it was a Fox game. Ohio by State way, Michigan on Fox was number 5. By the way, for all the for all the ESPN press releases that would tell you everything's going 
guns ablazing with their how much they're beating everybody. But of the top five games, ESPN ABC only had one of them. Yeah, ESPN likes to send out those press releases bragging about their ratings and trashing Foxes, but you know, part of it is just volume. They have so many more games than anybody else on a given week, then of course they're going to have the most viewers and, and they're going to be able to find two or three that they can spotlight as being up. At the end of the well, day, I'd like they to, were down. Uh, I'd like to also point out, too, when people talk about you know TV numbers for football being down, one of the things I think that people probably could factor into this is there is so much football on TV now that it's not like it was 20 years ago when you have maybe three games on your TV. And this some of this goes to NFL because now there's a Thursday game and there's a su- Sunday night game. And, and I just think there's just more ways to get football now that it's hard for people to stay engaged for – you know, to watch every game that they used to. Sure. Moving on. My turn. This is from Ryan in Georgia. Hey, guys, I didn't miss a show. Great job. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, With Jeremy Pruitt going to Tennessee, Dan Mullen to Florida, Kirby killing it at Georgia, will this be the death of competitive play from Kentucky, Vandy, and South Carolina? The way these three programs are going to recruit the East footprint moving forward it seems like the big three are set to reemerge, making the division resemble the SEC East of the late 90s. I believe a resurgent Tennessee program would immediately damage South Carolina's ability to compete at a high level. Would love to hear your opinion. Thanks, Ryan, in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to tell. I mean, it's been a great couple of years for Kentucky. Obviously, Vandy, not so great this year, but has had success recently, and South Carolina certainly has. By the way, we sung Kurt Roper's praises on here a couple weeks ago, and Muschamp went ahead and fired him. He did. I think, I think he's right. I don't think Florida, you know, Dan Mullen going to Florida changes much uh, for those programs, and, and maybe even not necessarily Curry being at Georgia. It's Tennessee. I don't think it's any coincidence that Kentucky and Vandy's upswings have coincided with Tennessee's demise. If Pruitt can get it going there, yeah, it's going to be really tough uh, for those programs to compete. But we just don't know. Like, he's, he's, to me, one of the bigger question marks. I, I think he could be really good. He certainly has the, the pedigree and the, and the experience. But it's not like, like, I know Dan Mullen will do well at Florida. I'm not the least bit concerned about that. I think what Tennessee's trying is seeing, what hap- is seeing exactly what Kirby Smart is doing at Georgia and trying to follow that blueprint. And, you know, you're going to have – I'm curious your thoughts on something else. If, if this works, if Pruitt works at Tennessee and Kirby, Kirby keeps winning at Georgia, what do you think about the fact that the Sabinization of this conference would basically, I mean, the whole conference practically will be either Saban or Saban mimics? Well, let's see it. I mean, because, you know, Will Muschamp is a Saban guy as well. And, you know, part of this question is talking about, you know, whether South Carolina could get squeezed. So we'll see. I mean, Kirby's done a really good job at Georgia, I think. And you know what? Somebody had pointed out this. This is a football coach who had said this. He said, I really think Jeremy Pruitt deserves a little bit of credit for helping kind of grease the transition for Kirby there because in his tumultuous time with Mark Rick, he pushed for a lot of things that Kirby was going to want right. for them to change the football program. There was some rocky road to that point, and I think it's worked out. I mean, obviously – Kirby's doing, you know, that staff is killing it on the recruiting trail, too. So to see where they go, no doubt. Now, Kentucky, Mark Stoops did a really good job in Ohio. I think there's enough players in that area to make headway. We'll see. I want to get back to something you said in the context of Ryan's question. You said, you know, you think no no doubt Dan Mullen is going to do well. 
what exactly how how would you define doing well for the new head coach at Florida? I mean, winning uh, it, winning the SEC and getting back in the playoff, getting back in the national championship okay. conversation. Do you think to, so? You think Dan Mullen will get Florida into the playoff within four years? I do. Yes, yes, I do. Okay. How quickly? Some of that maybe maybe dependent on what happens across the division. I mean, across the other side of the conference, but. I mean, Jim McElwain got them in the SEC title game, so I'm not too worried about that part of it. Although, obviously, yeah, but, it's, but it's winning it is a big. Yeah, is a they got to win story. it. They got to get in the playoff. And you said within four years, certainly. Yeah. I mean, we did this uh, last summer. We were listing the after Hugh Freeze got fired. We both, well, I know I said it. I can't remember if you agreed or not that Mullen was the second best coach in the conference after Saban, and now he's taking over a program with so many more uh, advantages. Yeah, I think that was also reflective of how much the conference had dropped, though, in uh, in coaching. I mean, I don't think he's one of the 15 best coaches in football. I know we had had this discussion, and maybe we should re-tee it up at the playoff again with Ralph Russo uh, when we went through our top 20 coaches, because I feel like it would change a lot from where it was. By the way, I had this conversation with somebody else the other day. We'll, we'll revisit soon. Uh, I don't want to get too far off the mailbag. Your turn, Stu. All right, let me scroll down a couple here. <clears throat> this is an interesting one from Shane. A couple weeks back, Bruce said that the Apple Cup was his first trip to Husky Stadium since 2001, which surprised me because I think it is think of it as one of the great and uh, best-known stadiums in college football. I also realize I may have assumed you guys see more stadiums than you really do, given the number of games per season. My question is, what major or well-known historical stadium do you and Bruce each think the audience would be surprised to learn that you've gone the longest without reporting a game from? And correspondingly, which stadium do you think you've done the most games from? So for me, yeah, I've been to Husky Stadium, you know, several times in between. But just for an actual game, yeah, that's right. It was the Marcus Tuiasosopo, I think it was actually 2000, not 2001, by the way, um, when, they, when they beat Miami. But yeah, so that was the first time. Uh, for me, it would be Clemson. I've never done a game there. The place where I've probably been done the most games from would either be the Orange Bowl, which now obviously doesn't exist, or probably the probably the the Coliseum where USC plays, just because I've you know I live out here, so I've been to a lot of games there. I've checked a lot of stadiums off the bucket list over the last five years or so including Clemson. Saw my first game there when Lamar Jackson played there last year. So, but there's a few. I've never, I've never been to Folsom Field in Colorado. I would love to see a game there. I've never been to either Army or Navy for a game, which would be fantastic. Have you ever been to the Grove? I've never been to the Grove. No, that's, that's, people are listening to this now are going to be gassed, but no, I'm not. In terms of which ones I've been to the most, it's either the Horseshoe which, you know, if you were asking this question at the end of the Trestle era, that would have been absolutely the answer. Combination of moving to California around the time Urban Meyer took over, and I've covered a lot of Ohio State games with him as the coach, but it seems like they were all, or almost all, away from Columbus. It's possible that that has been passed by Bryant Denny, but probably not. It's probably still Ohio State. Okay. Bryant Denny Uh, would be a close second. Okay. This question is from John in Maryland. How does the committee in how does the committee's inclusion of Alabama as the quote better team of, of over Ohio State, who in most observers' estimation was the quote most deserving team, change your thoughts on whether the playoffs should rightly be selecting the best teams or most deserving teams? Well, in an ideal world, they'd be the same. In an ideal world, you would have the, we think these are the four best teams, and they're also all deserving. 
it was tough. Alabama was the first one where I felt like they they didn't have a good resume-based argument for them. They just were going purely on, we think they're the better team. They were the first one, so they've been, what, 16 playoff teams now? First mm-hmm. one with fewer than three top 25 wins. So, was uh, it change it? No, I think, I mean, it's intentionally a little bit vague because there are going to be teams that, that don't have the resume that but the, the country as a whole feels are deserving or one of the best. So I don't think you can take that language and change it. But like I, we said last week, this one, this one made me uncomfortable because there wasn't any real justification you could do for it other than, well, we just think they're the best. Let me, uh, towards John's question, I will say this. I lean towards what I say is most deserving over best because I feel like college football has enough unknowns and, inten- you know, like uh, just basically theory or s- supposition to it because unlike other sports, you just ha- don't have as many, uh, you don't have as many games. Teams don't play, you know, don't play a uniform number of non-conference games across the board. So I feel like what's happened like this to me is this, this is a perfect example. What, and you and I got into this disagreement, you know, at mid season when Ohio state had that really impressive win. And all of a sudden now people are like, Oh yeah, put them in front of Oklahoma. And you, I think you were saying, who would you pick on a, you know, a neutral field or whatever your argument to me was. And my point was this game happened it actually wasn't close. It happened in Columbus. And to just kind of like dismiss the merits of that game when it happened to me is not what college football should be about. So I get stuck, and I will say this, use that phraseology, I get stuck on most deserving quite a bit over best. And I can live with that. You know, to me, and I think you're the same way, that it just comes back to, you know what, you or I don't personally care necessarily. Like, it's not like... We're hurting for, you know, these aren't our teams. You know, we want to see the best matchups we can. I think you and I both kind of try to subscribe to whatever we think the committee's lot rationale is, and then we kind of get stuck, mm-hmm. you know, holding on to that. I mean, whether, you know, it doesn't, it didn't hurt me. It didn't offend me that Alabama's in the game and Ohio, and Ohio State's not. I mean, Ohio State, to me, has nobody to blame for themselves. You know, if they, if they even lose that game by three points instead of 30 points, maybe they are in the playoff. Uh, I do tend to default to most deserving as well, but let me give you a possible, just throwing this out there, the counterpoint to why it should be strictly most deserving. Two years ago, 2015, Iowa and Michigan State play a Big Ten championship game where it's known the winner will make the playoff. It was right down to the last second. Iowa was a team that most people did not believe was one of the four best teams, but if they had won that game, they would have been in. Michigan State won, and... I didn't per, wasn't particularly impressed with that Michigan State team, but they I think at that point had beaten four top twenty five teams. They'd won at Ohio State or the defending champs. They beat Michigan on the um, drop punt snap. There was no question. Their resume was one of the four best. They just didn't feel like one of the four best teams. They get shut out thirty eight nothing to Alabama. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at the Sagarin ratings from that year. Now, granted, bowl game is counted. Mm-hmm. And both teams got blown out in their bowl games, but Michigan State seventeenth and Iowa 22nd. Now, I'm not saying I would have handled it differently, but you could make an argument that that was a clear case where that team was, was not one of the four best. Should they have put somebody else in instead who was? Yeah, I, again, I, I think we kind of hover around the same place on this, but 
it's uh it's a good it's a you know i don't know i don't know if college football is better for this kind of debate but but um people are still going to watch the games i mean it's not like you can say oh they picked the bigger brand i mean they, they had the choice of two huge tv <laughs> tv uh powerhouses and they picked the one that quite honestly didn't get blown out by clemson last year there was a, that was funny to hear people say oh it's all about the brands all about, like if ohio state had gotten in we would have been hearing the exact same thing can we get into Ryan, the other, like maybe the third Ryan we've had on this podcast? Yes. Email back. Can we get into his? Okay, Ryan Adair, Bruce and Stu. I know you guys typically don't talk about Colorado State football, my alma mater, on the podcast, which is totally fair. However, this week with the Jeremy Pruitt hiring, there were some side effects that impact the Rams. We lost two assistants, Terry Fair and Will Friend, to the Vols. First, how do you assess the job Mike Bobo has done in year three? And secondly, how big of a negative impact will losing those assistants uh, have on our program and he points out that Will Friend was the highest paid group of five assistant in the country Yeah, so uh, on background. This is something we reported last week uh, Will Friend and Jeremy Pruitt very close Will Friend had a big role in getting Jeremy Pruitt to Georgia a few years ago And so I think this is a tr- very very trusted assistant who's coming on to work with the O-line For him in uh, in Knoxville. I think Bobo's done a very good job. I mean you look at at the transition from Jim McElwain there, you know, they've had some nice wins over the course of, you know, his time there. They've never had the great year. That's the thing. They've had three, seven and six seasons in a row where I think they've been pretty good and never, you know, never had like a, a big 10 win season. But you look, you know, started out the year, they just destroyed Oregon State. Now Oregon State turned out to be, you know, a real dud. They hung with Alabama on the road for a while, which is which is not bad. I thought that the hard thing for them has been you, you look at how they lost. They lost to Josh Allen's team on the road by a field goal. They lost in overtime to Boise State. I mean, if either one of those goes the other way, then I think you're talking about an eight-win team. So I think Bobo's done a pretty good job. I thought if things broke differently with all some of these SEC openings – you know, whether it was Ole Miss, you know, coming open, which it really never did because Matt Luke's getting it. I think he had a shot at Mississippi State as well. I think he's done a pretty good job there, especially for a guy who, you know, didn't fit in the geographical geographical footprint, being a guy who spent almost his entire career uh, in the SEC. I'll give you some CSU trivia, which I know you don't know. What is like the magic jersey number at CSU? If you wear this number, you immediately are seen as a star receiver. I knew that at one point. I don't. I don't. Why, know. I don't. Why am I gonna? Okay, it is the number four. Mm-hmm. And who the has great, worn that? The great Pete Rebstock and almost as great Dave Anderson both won the number four for them. So uh, much so that we a few years ago, this maybe Ryan will be the only other person in the country who will appreciate this line. I watched the the uh, CU Colorado State game at a bar in our town where the aforementioned Dave Anderson, who lives near me. We watched it, and somebody walked in with a Rams number four jersey, and I think he turned around and it had Reb stuck on it. So that was the guy who was before him who was very productive. Well, let's round out with another group of five question from Eric Anderson in Chicago. Stu and Bruce, since the advent of the playoff, interest in group of five football has dropped. If you were a group of five conference commissioner, what would you do to stimulate interest in your product? Okay, I know the commissioners don't agree with me on this, but... I think the idea that NIU's AD came up with to do a group of five playoff is the way to go. I just think that while it would require sucking up their pride and admitting that there's a, you know, there's a gap there, I just 
this this isn't working. You know, this in the BCS it was kind of novel that they would play for a BCS bowl. But you know, congratulations to UCF, great season. You're going to go play in the Peach Bowl. Your coach left. Doesn't this doesn't feel like a proper reward to me anymore? So, what would be the proper reward? I'm sure people would say they should be in the playoff. I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the only way, I think Houston would have been the interesting one. If they could have gone undefeated last year with wins over Oklahoma and Louisville, would they have made it? Because if they couldn't, no group of five teams is going to make it. If you had your own playoff amongst those teams where UCF is playing Boise State and Toledo is in, like the best of the best, you, you're telling me there wouldn't be interest in that? No, I, I think there would be. I think you're right, and I, I agree that to me, I would definitely be into that game, and I think that um, I think the public would want to see it as well, just because you know to me that's part of what college football is all about—the different speeds and different different kind of flavors of, of the sport from coast to coast. So I, I'd definitely be into that idea. And and I think most importantly, it's it's most important for the fans of those teams. That, that those are the people who I think are. Like when you watch a Maction game on a Wednesday night and they do a overhead shot or a crowd pan shot and there's just mm-hmm. nobody in the stands. What if instead, you know, Toledo's playing on a Wednesday night, what if there's a some sort of playoff berth on the line? You don't think there'd be more people in the stands? I just think it would renew interest at least. Like forget the whole country. How do you renew interest among your own fans? I, I think by the end of the season, UCF was doing pretty well. But they're not filling that stadium. You know, what do you do to reinvigorate interest among your own fan bases? And I think it's to give them something to play for beyond. I mean, Toledo won the MAC title and they go play in the one of those Alabama Bowls against the Sun Belt team. You're telling me their fans wouldn't be more invested in it if they were, the reward was you're going to go to a four team playoff and you're going to play the Mountain West champ? Yeah, absolutely. But again, when those games are all jumbled in whatever day of the week, that's hard. That's a tough ask for uh, for the fan base to go out and support consistently. Well, that's a whole other story about whether they should do all the. I mean, they didn't play a Saturday game in November. That's a whole other story. But I would do a group of five playoff, and I would play it now, right in this break between the uh, regular season and the New Year Six, and they could have the stage to themselves. People love football. They love college football. Frankly, I think those games would get a better rating than the Camellia Bowl. That's my prediction. Okay. Uh, I think you're probably right. All right. I'm glad we got some emails in. We'll do it again next week. Send them to and me. For, send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Oh, my God. Mark this occasion. The day Bruce remembered the email address. Three years and two, three months into our reign. Well, you guilted me into it still. All so. right. And uh, roll the credits. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoy college football podcasts, also subscribe to The All-American Podcast with Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson, and Chantel Jennings. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Feldman CFB. Follow me. Stu at SL Mandel and subscribe to the All American if you haven't done so already at theathletic.com slash all American. So come on, get over.